Today's reading is Ephesians 3:14 through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Listen to the word here. When the Pharisees heard that he had, this is Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, here's my question to you this morning. As you heard or you read that, as you heard that read, what did you hear as you listened to these words of Jesus? What stood out for you? How about the, the word commandment? Did that stand out? Or something that you need to do because he's talking about commandments and about these things that love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, or something that you need to try harder to do? Or something you need to add to your list of things that you need to do to perform as a Christian? If any of those responses resonated with you this morning, you're not alone. For much of my life as a Christian, that's how I've heard those words of Jesus. When I've heard those words of Jesus, that's how it struck me. But here's the problem. If being a Christian is about getting a fresh to-do list of expectations every time you come to church, every time you open up the Bible, then over time it can feel like you're getting buried in a mound of failure. And because it's too risky to admit that you feel like a failure, or that you're even to the point where you no longer even care, it's easy to go to just... It's easier, it's safer to just kind of go on autopilot, to just go through the motions, or to drop out altogether on this Christianity thing. I think that's where a lot of people end up, because they feel buried under these expectations of things they're supposed to do. So here's why I'm talking about this, because we've spent the first two months of this year, for those of you who are new to Grace, our theme for this year is a beautiful risk, and the risk is to see where love takes me, you, us together. And the first part of that risk is to let God love us, to take the risk to really let God love us. And so we spent two months in looking, exploring this theme of, of letting God love us. Because having assurance of God's love is foundational for really stepping into, into uh, uh, the fullness of our imagination and of creativity as, as people who are 
who are indwelt by the Spirit of God and who are made in the image of God. So we've been talking about that and looking at that. And I, hopefully you've been here to soak yourself in the love of God because I, my, my guess is as you're out working and as you're out doing everything you do during the week, that's not a place where you necessarily soak in the love of God. If anything, it probably takes a toll on your soul over time. So when, when we gather, this is a place where we ought to be able to, to, to sense afresh that God really is for us and he really loves us. And that's what I've been hoping to do in this, the first two months. So we're now making a pivot in March to focus on loving God and loving our neighbor. Moving from letting God love us and the, taking that risk to the risk of, of loving God and loving our neighbor. Now here's my concern. In pivoting from taking the risk to let God love us, to risk loving God and loving our neighbor, this could easily be assumed to be about performance. And once you frame these words of Jesus with performance, then it triggers measuring sticks for success. In other words, I now ask, how do I know if I'm succeeding in my attempt to perform? What if this is not God's idea for us? What if he's not about measuring success in our performance? And if that's true, how might that affect the way that we approach Jesus' words in Matthew 22 when he talks about loving God and loving neighbor? And that's what I want to explore with you this morning and hopefully to lay a foundation for us looking at at this theme of loving God and loving neighbor in, in in March. So if these words of Jesus are not about performance, they're not about succeeding in your performing, then what's the alternative? I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians, okay? So move uh, forward in the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 4, page 977. And and this is a letter written by Paul, and Paul is often viewed as a, a, someone who comments on Jesus and, and Jesus' words and, and what the Gospels reveal to us. So Paul often flushes out what we, we see of, and what we understand about Jesus. So in Ephesians 4, if you'll turn there, beginning at verse 11, he's talking about Jesus' um, ascension, he, his victory over, uh, over all principalities and powers, and he, he ascended into heaven, and then because of that, he brings in his victory things that he then gives to the church, specifically gifted people. Verse 11 of, of Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." Now go back to verse 11. First of all, it says that he gave these gifted people to the church, okay? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So people like me who, are, who have a, a gift that is given for the purpose of the church, it's not so that 
so that I might be the most important person in the church, but rather I exist to equip you all to be able to do the work that God has for you to do, the service, the work of ministry. It's right there in verse 12. Toward what end? We'll look at verse 12. For the building up of the body of Christ. Look at, that, look at those words there. For the building up of the body of Christ. And they go on. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. It's about maturity. The goal is maturity. And he goes on to, to emphasize that. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He uses the language of maturity in verse 15. Growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. In verse 16, he talks about the body growing so that it builds itself up in love. This language is also um, used by Paul in Colossians. Listen to Colossians 1.28. Again, the language of maturity. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay, here's the point. Do you hear the language of maturity there? Because it's there. There's In those texts that we just heard read to us is the language of maturity. So what if God's idea for us is maturity, not performance? What if God's idea for us is maturity, not performance? There's a conversation that's that's, that's within the educational circles, and I'm not in the educational circles, but I at least try to stay conversant by talking to people that are in it because we have a lot of educators here at Grace. There's a conversation within educational circles about mastery versus performance goals. Mastery versus performance goals. Now, it goes like this. Students have to perform in the classroom. But the question is, is performance their primary orientation? Because if it is, it affects the way that they learn. Here's a quote toward that end. Right behind me, there it is. Students with mastery orientation seek to improve their competence. Those with performance orientations seek to prove their competence. Mary Ellen Weimer, PhD, writes in Mastery and Performance Orientation. She explains further, a mastery orientation means that students believe that they have some control over factors related to learning. They believe they can learn, that hard work and efforts pays off, and that they have or can acquire strategies that will help them learn. They don't give up easily when a learning task challenges them. Those with performance orientations see learning as something beyond their control. Generally, they equate it with ability. And after several failed attempts to learn something, they decide they can't do it. That no matter what they do, they won't be able to learn math, learn to write, learn to paint, learn to ski, you name the skill. They just don't have what it takes. So maturity... And the mastery orientation that's linked to that involves growth and failure. So failure is part of the journey towards mastery, towards maturity, toward learning. And failure or lack of failure is not 
part of success. I've been a grandparent now for two years, so I still consider myself a rookie at it. But one thing that I've enjoyed as a grandparent is what I feel like is the opportunity for a do-over as a parent. It really, some of you are laughing. It's true, isn't it? Um, because as a parent, I always felt like there was this, in reflecting back on it now, there's always this pressure to get it right, to do the right thing, uh, to, to be on, to perform, to be successful as a parent. And, and I, I don't, I mean, I feel sorry for the p- younger parents these days because we didn't have social media back in the dark ages when I was raising my kids. And so there wasn't, I, we couldn't parade our kids out. We just had like photos that we took and we collected them and saved them. That's a weird thing we used to do. And it was for them, not for the wider world. So there wasn't these, all the measuring sticks that people have these days to find out if your kid is delayed or if they're on track or if they're brilliant or if they're not as brilliant as your friend's kid. And, and so there, there, there's even more pressure today. But even then, I felt a lot of pressure as a parent to, to get it right. And this time, I feel like I have opportunity to be more attentive. I'm, I'm in this space where I feel like I can be more attentive. And one thing that I've noticed is how inquisitive children are by nature. That's one of the things that I enjoy doing is just watching my grandson and just watching him explore and watching his inquisitiveness. And I can just sit there kind of like a scientist and study this kid. It's fascinating to watch. For example, if you put a wooden puzzle in front of a two-year-old, they will take that shape and they will look at it and they will look at the slots and they'll try to figure out which one goes in what slot, and they'll turn it around, they'll rotate it until they get it right. You can also tell a lot about a personality if, you, if that child takes that and just tries to jam it in there, no matter what the slot is. You're like, oh, wow, glad that's your kid, not mine. You've got some stuff you're going to have to work out with that child. But most of the time, it's, you're seeing this, this inquisitiveness and this desire to master this skill. And their inquisitiveness is mastery-based. They want to master an activity, whether it's working a puzzle or whether it's uh, figuring out how to put food on a spoon so they can feed themselves. And the sad thing is that eventually they abandon that in favor of the culture's emphasis on performance, on success, on competition, on succeeding more than someone else, on status, all the performance goals that are out here in our culture. You watch children gradually lose that mastery emphasis. And what's interesting is you come to the Bible and you see in Genesis 1 and 2 that that we find at the very beginning of the Bible that there's there's this narrative about humanity being made in God's image. And as God's image bears, we are given the mandate of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it and having dominion over every living creature. That's mastery language. Genesis 1 and 2 launches the entire trajectory of the biblical narrative with mastery language. And that mastery comes out of being made in the image of God. Mastery comes out of the creation mandate and it's inherent to our being made in the image of God. Paul picks up on this in the text we just re- that I just read to it to you in Ephesians 4, where he uses the language of growing up in Christ in verse 15. This is the journey we're invited into. 
And sadly, many people inside and outside the church expect Christians to really be about performance. And when it's about performance, then what you end up doing is having to find these benchmarks of success, and, and Christianity becomes about whether or not you're meeting up to those benchmarks of success, and churches become all about success as well. Why? Because that's something that we've imbibed, and maybe we pastors are at fault for that. That instead of putting up the, the goal of maturity, we've put in place of it benchmarks of success for performance. And I, I stand guilty on that one. I, I'm still learning and growing, and I'm realizing there are some things that I have gotten wrong along the way. For those of you who have been here along the way, I'm admitting it. I apologize. I get things wrong. And so as I realize that, then what I want to do is to bring it to you and, and to do some self-correcting by God's grace. I think this is one of those pieces for me. Paul also challenges this performance orientation in Galatians. So this is the last text we're going to be looking at. Turn to Galatians 5, if you would, please. Page 975, all right? Some people tell me they love looking at multiple scriptures. So this, this, this is for you. Galatians 5. A familiar passage, but look at it again. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So the flesh and the Spirit, Paul, as Paul outlines it here, these are two modes of being human. So these are two modes of being human. You either choose the mode of the spirit or you choose the mode of living in the flesh, okay? Only two ways of being human. He goes on in verse 18, but if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in contrast to that, he goes on in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And the first in that list is what? Verse 22. It's love, isn't it? And in context, Paul is talking about love for one another in the body of Christ. Of course, love for God and love for our neighbor would be included in there as well. But what's interesting is that this is the Spirit's work. The Spirit is given to us to produce love within us. So as we begin to talk about loving God and loving neighbor, this love that is supposed to come out of our life is a result of the Spirit's work. It's a result of sharing in the life of Christ that comes as gift to us. You got that? Everybody got that? If your neighbor's sleeping, ask him, did you get that, what he just said? It's amazing what you see up here. Gordon Fee writes these words. He says, The essential nature of the fruit is the reproduction of the life of Christ in the believer. Let me say it again. The essential nature of the fruit is the reproduction of the life of Christ in the believer. That's why these descriptions of the Spirit's fruit in our lives are also used of Jesus. 
So when you look at Jesus, his life could be described as being marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness because the Spirit's fruit is intended to cause us to look like Jesus, to grow up into maturity so that we might have a life that looks like Jesus. And this is the Spirit's fruit in us, so it's not about our performance. What's interesting is each one of these descriptions of the Spirit's fruit is also relational. They're descriptions about life in the community of, the, of, of Christ followers, about God's new creation community. What this means is that you can't have love apart from having someone else, right? You can't say, I'm a loving person, if there's no one who can corroborate that. You have, love has to have an object. In the same way, all these descriptions of the Spirit's fruit is designed to be in relationship, in this community primarily. So one of the things that I would say to you all is this, that in order to grow into Christ-like maturity, you have to be in the body of Christ. Because that's where the Spirit, so the Spirit produces his fruit so that we might be a community that manifests this type of fruit. Does that make sense? So we have to be in community. So you can't go off and just go work on this It's not a solo project. It's not something you take on yourself to try hard to do. Again, against the performance stuff. It's the Spirit's fruit. And it's about making us mature in Christ. And that happens as we are practicing it as a community with each other. And when you look at those descriptions, what you realize is that that the Spirit is intended to produce a community marked by other-centeredness. And that's what Christ-like maturity is really about. It's about an other-centeredness. Which, surprise, surprise, Philippians 2, Paul talks about, let this mindset be in you which was in Christ Jesus. And what was that mindset? He gave himself, right? He gives himself even to the point of going to the cross on our behalf and dying so that we might have life. So as, as, I'm, as I'm looking at this, I'm overwhelmed by this realization that, that God's goal for us is maturity. His design for us is maturity. And that maturity is about an increasing level of other-centeredness. So how do you know if you're mature in Christ? Is it that you read your Bible all the time? That you sing songs, worship songs? That you come to church? Those don't hurt, but that's... The maturity is really the other-centeredness that looks like Christ. And that's the work that the Spirit wants to do in our lives. In other words, God has a purpose and a goal for our lives that's bigger than sin management. And that should be freeing to some people today. It's about stepping into his design for our lives. He has a design for our lives, and that design will continue into new creation. Okay, now if you've been sleeping, wake up for these 30 seconds. Because so many of us have bought into or heard within churches like this church that emphasize the Bible, rightly so, and emphasize, talk about the fact that sin is a reality. We use the S word. The backside of that, the downside of that is there's a tendency to view what we're supposed to be doing as Christians as primarily managing sin. The problem with that is this, that Jesus died and rose to defeat the power of sin in our lives. 
And he already has done that on the cross. He has defeated the power of sin. He's defeated death and with it, the power of sin. Got three amens on that one. It's true, regardless. So, if he's defeated the power of sin, and there is no sin in God's creation, and there's going to be no sin in the new creation, and he's defeated it at his resurrection, then what are we doing between the resurrection and the new creation? Huh? Boring if there's no sin to manage, really. If that's not the major focus. You see what's happened? The focus has become upon sin management. Instead, that's not God's design. God has designed that we step into the maturity that he wants us to step into, which is to look like Jesus, the fullness of the life that he's given to us to share in Jesus. That's radically freeing. And it's anything but passive because Galatians 5.25 says, keep in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? I do have a role, and what is my role? It's to understand God's design for my life, to understand what the Spirit wants to do, and that is to make me mature, to look like Christ. Now, here's how that happens. It's as I live my life and as you live your life and you encounter obstacles, problems, trials, anxieties, all the things, people, conversations that you have throughout the day, You can either embrace those as opportunities for God's design to be accomplished in your life, or you can see them as obstacles that you just want to get through to have peace. But if if I see these obstacles and these problems and these challenges as what is God wanting to do through this to, to, to design my life to look more like Christ, then what I can do is I can keep in step with the Spirit and try to align my life to be open and attentive to Jesus in that and to say, okay, shape my life through it. I look back at 27 years here, which have been filled with a lot of challenges, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of interesting circumstances that I've faced. And I look back on it now, and I can say that God was designing my life to be different. And I'm thankful for that. I wish someone would have told me what I'm telling you while I was going through it. Not that some platitude of God has a wonderful plan for your life, you know, just trust and just have faith and all that kind of language, but rather that he really is wanting to design your life into something that looks like Jesus How are you embracing his design in the midst of this to see how he might be shaping you? And that would have been a good question to cause me to go, yeah, I need to do something besides gripe and complain. Because God is really wanting to design your life and mine to look like Jesus. So this changes my framework as a Christian from asking, where am I failing? Where am I sinning? Where am I deficient? Or how do I work harder in the areas where I'm failing and, or sinning or deficient? To where am I still hooked into a performance mindset? And what is God's design for my life? That's a great question. What is God's design for my life? Because God, by his spirit, is trying to lead me out of a performance mindset and into the fullness of life that Jesus offers. Now, Not in the future, but now in the fullness of life that is offered to us in Christ. So as we take this beautiful risk to love God and to love our neighbor, we're invited into God's design for our lives. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
So as we move forward and we talk about loving God and loving neighbor and asking, how do we take this risk? It's the risk to enter into God's design for our lives. It's the risk to step into the maturity of what God has for us through his spirit. It's to step into the fullness of life that Christ offers to us. It's the, it's the risk to put my life out there to be shaped, to look like Jesus. That's a risk worth taking. That's the risk that the Spirit wants to take us into. I look forward to it. How about you? I think it would be really great. Really great. Let me pray for us together as we move forward from this point. Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, spiritual fathers and mothers, brothers, sisters, children in faith. Lord, we are so prone to performance in this culture that rewards performance over everything else. It's so hard to drop that. Father, I, I thank you that in your word that you show to us that not only that you are for us and that you love us, but you are active through your spirit to shape us, to produce within us the likeness of Christ. I, I ask for the, the people that may be sitting in here today, Lord Jesus, that who are just really like one step away from just giving up on this altogether because they're so exhausted because they've tried stuff and in their minds it hasn't worked because their life is no different. I ask that you would encourage them and speak to them right now that you are wanting to work in their life. For those who need to lay their, their doing down, their performance down, I ask that you would give them the ability to open up their hands and to trust, to give their lives op- over to you, to find the joy that comes in just allowing your spirit to work in our lives. I pray that you would bring freedom and joy to people today because that's what you're about, Jesus. So please do your work in our lives. For your glory and honor, I ask this. Amen.